Capital One says it'll acquire Discover in a $35 billion deal that'll merge the two largest credit card companies in the U.S. It's Tuesday, February 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. Supreme Court hears a case that could transform how cities address homelessness. What a just society should expect is that you're not going to punish someone for something they have no ability to control. Also this hour, syphilis cases are surging in the U.S. and providers are rationing penicillin shots that are in short supply. Plus, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Syrian-American journalist talks about her search for identity. I was born here, I was raised there, you know, I speak so many languages, I count in French, I dream in Arabic, I work in English. In sports, Bruins win, sunny in 30s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.N. Security Council is expected to vote this morning on a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The U.S. is expected to veto that, but proposed its own measure instead, calling for a temporary pause. Linda Fasulo reports the U.S. is concerned any resolution could harm ongoing diplomatic talks on the war in Gaza. The U.S. draft resolution calls for a temporary ceasefire as soon as practicable, the freeing of all hostages taken from Israel by Hamas, and the easing of restrictions on aid delivery to Gaza. The U.S. proposed measure says that a major ground offensive by Israel into Rafah should not proceed under current circumstances and would have serious implications for regional peace. It would also result in further harm to civilians, including displacement to neighboring countries, the draft noted. For NPR News, I'm Linda Fasulo in New York. A member of Israel's war cabinet has said that if Hamas does not free the hostages in the next three weeks, fighting will continue everywhere in Gaza. That includes in the southern city of Rafah, now sheltering more than a million Palestinians. NPR's Aya Batrawi says the city is right on Egypt's border and Egyptian authorities are worried. There haven't been any direct calls between Egypt's president and Israel's prime minister, but Egypt is still trying to get Hamas and Israel to agree to a ceasefire of some kind. Now, as a precaution, Egyptian security officials tell NPR Egypt is constructing a walled-off security zone that could take up to 150,000 Palestinians on its side of the border in case people do break through and breach Egypt's border. Egypt is very concerned that any displacement of Palestinians into Egypt would be permanent and that it would drag Egypt into the war. NPR's Aya Batroi reporting. The UN's top court is continuing its hearing this week into whether Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories is legal. Palestinians say it's not and should end. Israel says this case fails to recognize Israel's duty to protect its citizens. A U.S. federal appeals court will hear oral arguments today in Philadelphia. It's for an election case that could have big implications for a key swing state this year. As NPR's Hansi Lo Wang reports, a panel of judges is weighing what to do with mail-in ballots that arrive on time but without handwritten dates on the envelopes. This lawsuit could determine who wins this year's elections in Pennsylvania. State law requires mail-in ballots to be sent in envelopes with a date handwritten by the voter. But those dates are not used to verify if a person is qualified to vote. Last year, a lower court concluded not counting those ballots violates the Civil Rights Act, which says a person's right to vote cannot be denied for an error that is, quote, not material in determining if a person is eligible to vote. That ruling has been appealed to the third U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals by the Republican National Committee, which expects this case to reach the U.S. Supreme Court. Pennsylvania officials recently redesigned the outer envelopes for the mail-in ballots to try to remind voters to write the current date under their signatures. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong. 
It's NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. A new day shelter is opening its doors this morning in Chelsea. As WBUR's Todd Wallach reports, more such shelters are in the works. The Chelsea shelter will open during the day and provide space and services for up to 200 people. It's one of nine shelters the United Way of Massachusetts Bay has helped set up in the last few months using a state grant. The others are open around the clock. Every night, 100 families have a place to sleep who wouldn't have otherwise. Sarah Bartley is a vice president at the United Way. She says the work isn't done. We'll have enough funding left after this to bring a couple more opportunities forward. The $5 million state grant expires in May. But Bartley hopes all the new shelters remain open in some form much longer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Governor Maura Healey is acknowledging concerns over growing violence at Brockton High School. This week, school committee members called on the city's mayor to request the deployment of National Guard members to the high school. The group says a growing number of students are getting into fights and using drugs on campus. Healey's office says it's committed to providing a safe and supportive environment to students and school staff. Brockton's mayor says National Guard soldiers are not the answer. The cities of Chelsea and Everett will share $750,000 in federal funding to protect against flooding caused by climate change. Both cities are prone to coastal flooding and increasing coastal storms. Bianca Navarro-Bowman of the environmental justice group Green Roots advocated for the money. Having this much support from the federal government to really say these working class communities are important and should be climate resilient and resilient to floods and heat and any kind of storms that will continue to happen as climate change really changes the way our cities look. Yeah, it's really huge and really important for us to to receive this kind of funding. Navarro Bowman adds the money will be used in part to build a flood wall on the waterfront in Everett to protect businesses. The wall on the Chelsea side will create more marshlands. If you missed the opportunity to mark President's Day yesterday, you still have the chance in Quincy this week. Adams National Historical Park will have activities all week honoring the two former presidents who lived at the site. That would be Presidents John Adams and John Quincy Adams. The free kid-friendly programs include daily story times and crafts centering presidential history. The National Park's Hillary Miller says Wednesday's event will feature a special guest. John Adams will be talking to us a little bit about what it was like to be a kid in Quincy in the 1700s. He'll be sharing his stories about growing up, and then anybody in attendance will get to try out some historic toys and fashions. The former homes of John Adams and John Quincy Adams are closed until the spring, but you can still explore the grounds and see them from the outside. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network. So everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. It took nine rounds of a shootout, but the Bruins eventually won a thriller at the Garden last night, beating the Dallas Stars 4-3. With that win, the Bees ended a tough seven-game homestand on a good note. Meanwhile, Boston women's pro hockey team dropped a game at home to New York 4-2, and the Celtics are off. Sunny today will have highs in the mid-30s. Clouds move in tonight. Lows will be in the upper 20s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow will have highs back in the mid-30s. It's 21 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Charles Schwab, 
offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com and the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Eight House lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans, think they have a bipartisan solution to a congressional standoff over foreign military aid. Their measure includes $66 billion for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, which is less than the $95 billion approved by the Senate. The new bill also folds in security measures for the U.S. border with Mexico that many Republicans demand. One of the lawmakers behind the compromise is Republican Representative Mike Lawler of New York. Congressman, first off, uh, what does House Speaker Mike Johnson think of the new bill? Has he weighed in? Uh, He's not weighed in yet, and uh, we're having continuing conversations uh, about it with him. Uh, But the objective is to advance legislation. Uh, that will not only defend our borders here in the United States, but defend democracies around the globe, uh, including our allies in Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, There is no question uh, that Russia, China, and Iran have engaged in an unholy alliance that has sought to undermine and destabilize the free world. Uh, And we, as the leader of the free world, have an obligation Uh, to defend democracy around the globe. Are you trying, though, um, to fashion this bill in a way where he'll get it to the floor for a vote? Uh, That's the objective. Uh, You know, I mean, ultimately, obviously, there's a lot of opinions in Congress. uh, And, you know, we're trying to find some compromise uh, legislation that can advance through the House and, and the Senate and get signed into law. We need to provide lethal aid uh, and support uh, to uh, Ukraine and to Israel as quickly as possible. Uh, And the objective here is to advance legislation uh, that does have consensus uh, and that is a compromise of sorts. In addition, you know, the border crisis in our country is real. Uh, Since Joe Biden took office, nearly 10 million migrants have crossed our southern border most of them illegally, 90% of them have been released into the country, Uh, it's not working. And we need to enact legislation uh, that can help uh, stem this tide, this massive influx that we've seen. Congressman, where is the compromise on the Republican end for this bill specifically? Well, look, obviously advancing uh, legislation that would get the aid to Ukraine uh, quickly uh, is in part a compromise. Uh, we we have obviously had a lot of questions that many of my colleagues have raised with the administration. Uh, some of these questions have yet to be answered, uh, specifically as to uh, you know the the ultimate plan in Ukraine and and how we end this conflict. Uh, but you know the objective here is to find consensus on a way forward that deals with. Uh, lethal aid for Ukraine. Uh, Israel obviously has broad bipartisan support in Congress. Uh, The House has already acted on a number of these issues, uh, which is often lost in the conversation. The House has acted on aid to Israel. The House has acted on securing our border. Uh, And so we're trying to find a way forward. uh, And eight of us, Republicans and Democrats, working together have come up with uh, this plan to try and advance 
the ball and and get consensus. Your bill has 47 mil- billion earmarked for Ukraine. The Senate bill that didn't make it had 60 million. Um, you do have support, though, uh, from Senator Lindsey Graham. He's a Republican who opposed the Senate's uh, aid plan. But do you think that your bill would make it through a chamber that's controlled by Democrats? Well, again, this is where in a divided government, it, we all have to find compromise. Uh, you know, the conversation of late has been, well, whatever the Senate passes, the House has to accept. And that's just not the way this works. Uh, all of us have to find compromise here. And so what we are trying to do is uh, really kickstart the conversation again uh, through the House and and work with our colleagues in the Senate. Uh, to find a path forward. And so this this bill, while costing less than the Senate version, uh, also does something to address some of the challenges at the border. And so I think it's critically important that uh, both sides within the Senate and the House, Republicans and Democrats, uh, stop playing politics with this and focus on the path forward so that we can actually support our allies around the globe uh, and continue to be the leader of the free world. In light of what happened uh, with Alexei Navalny uh, and his his murder at the hands of Vladimir Putin, uh, that should crystallize for everyone the importance of getting this done. That is Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. Congressman, thanks. Thank you. A jury verdict could come at any time now in a corruption trial in Manhattan involving leaders of the National Rifle Association. The lawsuit against the once powerful gun group was brought by New York State Attorney General Letitia James. James is the same prosecutor whose fraud case against former President Donald Trump led to hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties last week. As NPR's Brian Mann reports, James has built a reputation and sparked controversy taking on some of the country's most powerful institutions and people. When Letitia James ran as a Democrat for attorney general in 2018, she was already in her early 60s and still mostly unknown outside New York City, where she'd served on the city council. During the campaign, James, who grew up in Brooklyn, promised to use the law aggressively. I will take on powerful interests and hold them accountable. Because regardless of where you live... In that campaign video, James singled out one man. I will take on President Donald Trump and anyone who tries to deny New Yorkers their most basic rights. James won, making history as New York's first black woman to serve as state attorney general. After the election, she told NBC News, quote, we will use every area of the law to investigate President Trump and his business transactions. And in her first year in office, James did just that. Her 2019 lawsuit forced Trump, still a sitting president, to shut down his charitable organization, the Trump Foundation, and pay a $2 million fine for allegedly misusing donations. James then sued Trump a second time, a far more sweeping case, claiming he deliberately inflated the value of his real estate holdings. And last week, she won again. Donald Trump may have authored the art of the deal, but he perfected the art of the steal. Trump, his sons, and their company were ordered to pay more than $350 million in penalties. Trump's promise to appeal. But speaking on Friday, James blasted the former president using language that at times sounded personal. Donald Trump's fraud is staggering. 
and so too is his ego. This kind of rhetoric, while James was campaigning for attorney general and afterward, has fueled accusations by Trump and his allies that James's lawsuits are politically motivated. Here's the former president speaking Friday. Letitia James, that's another case altogether. She's a horribly corrupt attorney general, and it's all having to do with election interference. After clashing with James, Trump took to calling her by a racially charged nickname and adding her to the list of enemies he says should be locked up. You know who should be arrested? The attorney general should be arrested for what she's doing. James has also become the focus of attacks by right-wing media figures like Sean Hannity, who say James and other Democratic prosecutors have used the power of their offices to target Trump unfairly. Does that sound like equal justice, blind justice in America? I don't think so. Appearing on Hannity's show on Fox in October, Jonathan Turley, the legal scholar from George Washington University, accused James in particular of campaigning improperly on a promise to bring Trump down. This is a trophy pledge that I'm going to bag Donald Trump. Trump hasn't been James' only high-profile target. In 2020, she sued the National Rifle Association's top executives, claiming widespread corruption. The NRA's influence has been so powerful that the organization went unchecked for decades. This case is now before a jury in Manhattan, but it's already forced the gun rights group to seek bankruptcy protection. On the eve of the trial, James's lawsuit toppled another once powerful figure, longtime NRA CEO Wayne LaPierre, who's named in the suit, resigned abruptly, citing health concerns. James hasn't only taken on conservatives. In 2021, it was a probe by her office into allegations of sexual harassment that toppled a fellow Democrat, then-Governor Andrew Cuomo. The attorney general did a report on complaints made against me by certain women for my conduct. The report said I sexually harassed 11 women. Cuomo denied wrongdoing, but resigned after also accusing James of a political hit job. Christina Greer, a political scientist at the City College of New York who studied James's career, says it's inevitable a prosecutor challenging powerful individuals and organizations will face blowback and criticism. It's an elected position, so isn't there always going to be politics in an elected position? Greer points out that whatever rhetoric James uses outside the courtroom, her cases are tested by judges and juries. Defendants, often represented by top-tier legal teams, have opportunity to show in court that allegations are false or politically biased. But so far, Greer says, James keeps winning. She's able to take on these very high-powered men, Democrats and Republicans alike, because she also has a very dedicated team of lawyers. NPR asked James for an interview for this story. She declined. Speaking last year, she addressed Trump's claim that her focus on him is a political witch hunt. This case has never been about politics or personal vendetta or about name calling. This case is about the facts and the law. James's crusading style has clearly earned her big enemies, and her rhetoric has raised questions about the boundary for prosecutors between politics and the law. So far, those questions have been overshadowed by big wins in the courtroom. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. 
Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of Capital One agreeing to buy Discover for $35 billion. Also, the U.S. has proposed a draft U.N. security resolution that would support a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, doctors in the U.S. are rationing penicillin shots amid a surge in syphilis cases. It's 720. WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together, supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. Texas has spent millions busing the record number of migrants to cities across the country. If nothing else, then to raise awareness to the rest of the country of of what we're having to deal with here on a regular basis. But critics argue the program is too expensive and inhumane. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today. Highs will be in the mid-30s. It'll grow overcast tonight and temperatures will dip into the 20s. Partly sunny tomorrow and we'll have highs back in the mid-30s. It's 21 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. Journalist and now former CNN anchor Hala Garani has traveled the world covering war, violent extremism, natural disasters, and mass migration. She says she feels like she belongs everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Her parents are from Syria. She was born in the U.S. and grew up in France. And a lot of the time, based on how she looks, people assume she's not Arab. That's the backbone of her new book called But You Don't Look Arab, a search for where she belongs. She takes stock of her own path professionally and personally, and she digs into her family's history, a history of movement. Throughout that movement, there is a clock that stayed in her family's possession for generations. It was the clock of one of my female ancestors who was forced to leave Istanbul when the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And it was on her bedside table in Aleppo, Syria, more than 100 years ago. It runs, but just too fast. And so we joked and said, it's like the Middle East. It has all the right pieces, but it just can't run in an efficient way. And it's an anchor to the memories that our families hold and to the stories we still tell each other. Garani describes her life as always being on the move and being asked again and again about her background. I think being from one place through my parents, born in the U.S., raised in Europe, living in London, of being always forced into change and displacement is what made me love this journalistic career as much as I do, because it allows me to 
try to find myself in each story that I tell. Mm. Um, whenever someone seems out of place, I ask them, where are they from? What country do they identify with? Where do they call home? Because so many Middle Easterners' stories are generational stories of displacement. True. And we feel comfortable when we're on the move. I do anyway. Yeah. And I think the answer to the question, where do you feel most at home, is maybe it's in this journey. Maybe it's just better to embrace the movement. Hmm. I mean, how do you answer that question? When people ask you where you are from, how do you answer? It's a whole paragraph I've rehearsed. <laughs> my whole life. I was born here. I was raised there. You know, yeah. I count in French. I dream in Arabic. I work <laughs> in English. I mean, Malouf, the, the Lebanese-French writer, wrote it so well. He said, we recognize ourselves often, and I'm paraphrasing now, but in the facet of our identity that is most attacked. So true. And so I really, really dug deep into my family's history. And, I, and that's when I realized how, how so many generations before the wars and the revolutions were also displaced, whether it was during the Ottoman Empire or my parents, and then this latest generation of family members in Aleppo that have had to flee the current war. So it's this kind of perpetual movement. In the book, When We Know You in Childhood and Early Adulthood, you're Hala Basha, who speaks three languages, including Arabic, until you try to break into journalism in France, and you become Hala Garani, who speaks two languages, not including Arabic. Why did you make that decision? Because... There is discrimination, you know, in many countries against people, I think, who are of a certain ethnicity and origin. And, and it was my experience. I had graduated from a elite university in France, and I was getting almost no job interviews. So I removed the fact that I spoke Arabic from my resume, added a photo, and changed my name. Hmm. And that did the trick. Did it feel strange to think, oh, I have to put a picture to show them I'm light-skinned and I have to change my name and distance from this identity that is me? This is in the 90s. Things have changed. But there was kind of this notion that, well, if you're from the Middle East, can you cover the Middle East? And that would never be asked of someone who's Western or mm -hmm. covering their own country, right? But you would ask that of someone whose origin is Middle Eastern or Arab, whether or not they have enough distance. Yeah. And a lot of that, like you said, has changed this idea that like as a Middle Easterner, you can't cover it fairly, but a lot of it hasn't. I mean, when Syria went from an uprising to a civil war to what it is today, I mean, how did you navigate covering that? Because like you said, you had family in Syria and this is a government that made no qualms about killing civilians and quashing dissent violently. You know, I lived it like the death of a family member. For mm. me, Syria was always my one connection to my heritage, Aleppo in particular. And when that went up in flames, the old city, the old market, the hammam, the Ottoman hotel that was blown up, it every time was pain as if I was physically suffering. Mm. And... It's like a family member that is now gone. And now we're at the stage where we can write about it, talk about it, that Aleppo we once knew, maybe with more of a smile on our face than with tears. Being of such a multi-layered identity, mostly raised in France, lived as a child in Missouri, went back and forth between the US, Syria. How has that shaped the way you tell stories of people who are often otherized? 
I think it's given me more of an understanding to understand what it's like to feel rootless and to feel like we are always on the search for who we are. The, the protagonist in The Invisible Man said, when I discover who I am, I'll be free. And there is something to that. There is a natural human impulse, I think, in all of us to want to know where we're from, and it helps us know for some reason where we're going. And I think it's mm -hmm. a perpetual quest. And in my journalism career, it's really helped me understand, I think, especially if I cover a refugee story, for instance, with what's happening in Gaza right now. I'm not a conflict reporter. I, I feel like I'm a humanitarian reporter, not in the sense that I'm a humanitarian, but in the sense that I'm interested in the human consequence of conflict and disaster. Yeah. And so I think that's where my upbringing and my internal identity conflicts come into play. Halagarani, Emmy Award-winning anchor and correspondent on her new book, But You Don't Look Arab and Other Tales of Unbelonging. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, how students at the University of Vermont are providing hands-on help to rural towns in the state. It's 7.29. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Authorities in Minnesota say a heavily armed man who shot and killed two police officers and a firefighter paramedic at a house near Minneapolis had a criminal record. Matt Sepik with Minnesota Public Radio has more. Shannon Cortez Gooden barricaded himself in a house with seven children before fatally shooting three first responders and wounding a fourth early Sunday. The children were not physically injured. The 38-year-old's history of violent crime made it illegal for him to possess firearms, according to court records, which also show that two romantic partners had filed orders for protection against him. The standoff in Burnsville ended with Gooden's death. It's unclear how he died. Capital One says it's agreed to purchase Discover Financial in an all-stock deal valued at more than $35 billion. NPR's Giles Snyder says it'll be up to federal regulators to decide if that merger goes through. Capital One CEO Richard Fairbank announced a deal to employees in a video, calling the purchase an opportunity to change banking for good. Capital One says it expects the purchase of Discover Financial to be approved by early next year. However, antitrust regulators are likely to take an interest as the Biden administration seeks to promote competition across the economy, including in the banking sector. That's NPR's Giles Snyder. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
This is a week off of school for a lot of cities and towns in Massachusetts, but not in Newton. WBUR's Dan Guzman explains why there's no February break in the city this year. The Newton School Committee canceled four days of vacation to help make up for 11 school days lost to the teacher strike. Ashley Raven is a teacher in Newton. While there is a lot of I don't want to say disappointment, but while it's challenging not to have break, we still believe that the outcome and the long-term benefits are, are worth the pain in the long run. Because some families already had vacation plans, the Newton School Committee said students who are absent during the makeup days won't be penalized. The committee has not decided yet whether part of April vacation will need to be canceled for more makeup days or if the school year will need to be extended. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. New research from Yale is exploring the possibility of delaying menopause in women. Dr. Kutluk-Oktai is behind the research. He says that freezing ovarian tissue and surgically re-implanting it later could delay or even prevent menopause. In theory, uh, menopause can even be eliminated. But for most women, We might be looking at a delay in the uh, range of 10 years, 15 years, especially if they're doing this uh, uh, well before age 40. He adds that delaying menopause could help women live longer and prevent bone loss and cardiovascular disease. Shuttle buses are replacing sections of Green Line service starting today as crews work on the tracks. The 18-day shutdown stretches along the B branch between Copley and Babcock Street, the C branch between Copley and Cleveland Circle, and on the D branch between Copley and Brookline Hills. T officials say crews are working to upgrade infrastructure and improve reliability along the line. People going to cheer on the Bruins or Celtics at TD Garden should take note of a new bag policy now in effect. The rule prohibits fans from carrying bags into the venue that are bigger than 6 by 4 inches. That's about the size of a drugstore photo print. The garden now has the most restrictive bag measurements compared to other venues in the region. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. The Bruins beat the Dallas Stars last night at home, scraping by with a goal in the ninth round of a shootout. The final score was 4-3. They play the Edmonton Oilers tomorrow. And the Red Sox officially kicked off spring training in Florida yesterday. They play their first game later this week against Northeastern. Highs in the mid-30s today, and it'll be sunny. Tonight, temperatures fall to the upper 20s, and it grows cloudy. Tomorrow, highs in the mid-30s again under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. It's 21 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. There's been a surge nationwide in syphilis cases. The sexually transmitted infection can often be treated with a simple shot. But as Nashville Public Radio's Catherine Sweeney reports, a drug shortage makes it harder to treat syphilis. Walking into Nashville's main public health clinic, you see big, splashy posters about what they do best— vaccines for all ages, and treatment for sexually transmitted diseases. But in the back, they're coping with a shortage. Penicillin's in here. Laura Varnier, the head nurse, shows me the huge metal refrigerator where they store penicillin shots. Usually, anyone who comes to this clinic with syphilis could get one and be on their way. It's the go-to treatment for the sexually transmitted infection. But now, they're rationing the shots. We pivoted in July And we would say any of our patients that came in that were positive with syphilis were treated with doxycycline. That's an oral antibiotic. It is equally effective, but you have to take the pills for weeks, and they often have side effects like nausea or diarrhea or increased sun sensitivity. But doxycycline can cause birth defects, so pregnant people with syphilis absolutely can't take it. That's why this health department, and others across the country, are saving the penicillin shots for pregnant patients so they don't pass that infection on to the baby. The shortage of penicillin shots started last spring. A few things led to this. First, a lot of people are getting syphilis. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says cases are the highest they've been in seven decades. Next, there is a shortage of a different antibiotic, amoxicillin, often used for strep throat. Pediatricians couldn't get that, so they turned to penicillin shots as a substitute. And those shots have a supply problem. There's only one manufacturer in the U.S., Pfizer. Aaron Fox, a pharmacist and professor at the University of Utah, says only a giant like Pfizer can afford to make these shots. Most penicillin is made for IV drips. There's less demand for the shot form. And Fox says it must be made carefully. You know, a lot of people are allergic to penicillin. And so it's that contamination factor. So that means you can't make other drugs on that manufacturing line. It's not necessarily efficient or necessarily profitable for a very low-cost drug. A Pfizer spokesman said the company is spending almost $40 million in the Michigan facility that makes these shots, including hiring more workers, and that the shortage should ease up by the summer. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Sweeney in Nashville. This story comes from NPR's partnership with WPLN and KFF Health News. The U.S. Supreme Court hears a case this spring that could decide whether people can be punished for sleeping outside. The answer could reshape how cities manage a record high number of people living in tents and cars. Here's NPR's Jennifer Ludden. This all goes back to a landmark case in 2018. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Boise, Idaho, could not ticket people for sleeping on public property if there were no shelter beds available. It said that's cruel and unusual punishment. The Supreme Court declined to weigh in, but now it's taking up a similar case out of Grants Pass, Oregon. Homeless people there say the city broke the law when it aggressively tried to push them out. Helen Cruz lived in city parks for a time because they're close to the jobs she had cleaning houses. We're not out there because we want to be. We're out there because we don't have a choice. There's no place to go. Grants Pass banned the use of sleeping bags, pillows, and other bedding on public property. But it has no homeless shelter that's open to everyone. 
A religious housing center takes in some who agree to attend services. That left Helen Cruz racking up thousands in fines, which she can't pay. I keep getting uh, mail from Josephine County Court saying, you owe this, if you don't pay this, it's going to collections, which has destroyed my credit. Others were charged with criminal trespass and jailed. Again, the Ninth Circuit sided with unhoused people like Cruz. But the city of Grants Pass appealed, and it has drawn support from dozens of local and state officials across the West, Democrats and Republicans, who filed friend-of-the-court briefs asking the Supreme Court to take this case. They say these rulings have hamstrung what they can do and fueled the explosion of tent encampments that now sprawl across city parks, busy commercial streets, and residential back alleys like this one in South Central Los Angeles. Does anybody need harm reduction, needles, pipes? This outreach worker hands out clean needles to people who take drugs. Mounds of trash are piled between tents and makeshift shelters. Cities say encampments like this pose a threat to public health and safety and have led to record levels of people overdosing or dying on public streets. Last year at a political event in Sacramento, California Governor Gavin Newsom vented widespread frustration. It's just gone too far. People's lives are at risk. It's unacceptable what's happening on the streets and sidewalks. Compassion's not stepping over people on the streets. Seattle City Attorney Ann Davison wrote a legal brief on behalf of more than a dozen other cities, plus the National League of Cities. She says they need clarity. What constitutes adequate shelter? What if there is a bed open, but someone refuses to go? Plus, many places can't possibly afford to build enough shelter for everyone. Most of all, she says, local officials should be able to manage this complex problem as they see fit. We are trying to show there's respect for the public areas that we all need to have, and we care for people, and we're engaging and being involved in the long-term solution for them. It's interesting to me that the people in power have thrown up their hands and said there's nothing we can do, and the only solution we can think of is to arrest people. That's simply not true. Jesse Rabinowitz is with the National Homelessness Law Center. He and others say, in fact, the Ninth Circuit rulings do let cities regulate encampments. They can limit the time and place, ban the use of tents, even clear them out. And plenty of cities do, though they often face lawsuits over the details of what's allowed. In this case, Grants Pass did what's not allowed, says Ed Johnson of Oregon Law Center, which represents those suing the city. He says the ban was so broad, it essentially made it illegal for people to be homeless. And it's sort of the bare minimum in what a just society should expect, is that you're not going to punish someone for something they have no ability to control. They can't control it, he says, because like many places, Grants Pass has a severe housing shortage and high rents. He says cities are blaming the courts for decades of failed housing policies. Anne Oliva with the National Alliance to End Homelessness says fining and arresting unhoused people only makes the problem worse. When we criminalize people, we know that it impacts their ability to get a job. It impacts their ability to get housing in the long run if they have a criminal record. Some cities and states who side with Grants Pass are changing zoning and investing heavily to create more affordable housing, even as homelessness rates keep going up. It's a long-term challenge they'll still face, whatever the Supreme Court decides. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, lawyers for Julian Assange begin their final U.K. legal challenge today to stop the WikiLeaks founder from being sent to the U.S. to face spying charges. Sunny in mid-30s today, increasingly cloudy and upper 20s tonight, partly sunny in mid-30s tomorrow. It's 21 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years, part-time, for experienced professionals seeking data research skills. Info session on February 21st. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals is growing its workforce. That's despite many Boston-area tech companies laying off workers. The company says it grew its workforce by about 600 employees last year. It says the hiring is consistent with its growth as a company. A new report finds that Vermont and New Hampshire are some of the best states for minority entrepreneurs. A new report from Lendio ranks Vermont as number one. New Hampshire ranked fifth. The agency says the state's rankings were boosted by high business loan approval rates and lower income disparities. Massachusetts also made the list as the 20th best state for minority business owners. A popular Cambridge udon noodle shop is now open in the seaport. Yumiga Arakara opened its second location there. The owners say they plan to expand the restaurant's menu because the seaport location has a larger kitchen. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fazel. And I'm A. Martinez. Towns in rural Vermont face lots of challenges, housing shortages, struggling downtowns, and too little disaster preparedness. College students are stepping up to help, though. From the Heckinger Report and Vermont Public, here's Liam Elder Connors. KTP Mobile Home Park in Bristol, Vermont, is nestled in a convenient place, right next to the high school and about a mile from the small downtown. And it's affordable. The monthly lot rent is $375. But a recent windstorm hit the park hard. KTP property manager Chris Olette pointed to a home in the park with plywood nailed around the bottom. It looks like they just had to replace some skirting. We have a roof that was ripped off a house over there. We have a couple sheds that have been lost. Olette, who's in charge of rent collection and some park maintenance, tries to keep the budgets manageable for the 96 mostly low-income residents. But with more extreme weather, Olette says mobile home parks need help. It's very challenging because we don't have the people. The funding also is not there to be able to have, you know, have more staff on board to be able to tackle these bigger projects. The University of Vermont is stepping in. UVM senior lecturer Kelly Hamshaw, along with her students, are helping KTP and other parks tackle overdue projects, like assessing flood risk and developing emergency plans for when natural disasters strike. 
So when you're knocking on people's doors and saying, hi, I'm a student from the University of Vermont, people would be like, they'd look at you a little perplexed at first. And then, you know, what do you want to know? UVM isn't the only college doing this. Auburn University in Alabama and the University of Wisconsin received money from the same federal program that funds UVM's work. Glenda Gillespie at the University of Wisconsin says they're setting up weather stations to help cranberry farmers time their harvests, which involves flooding their fields. Farmers need to know when to do that <laughs> because it freezes here in Wisconsin, and so you want to have the perfect time for the berry. These initiatives might bring an added benefit of rebuilding trust in colleges and universities. Polling by Gallup found a decrease in Americans' confidence in higher education. Joe Guinan is president of the Democracy Collaborative, a national organization that encourages this kind of outreach. He says colleges need to find ways to be part of public life. It begins to put them in a different relationship to the community and then gives them some defenders when their political adversaries come for them, as come for them they will and will continue to do. University officials say restoring trust in higher education isn't the primary reason they're doing this work. In Vermont, residents in rural areas like Lisa Mitchell are glad that UVM is making the effort. Mitchell runs a theater in Middlebury, and recently UVM pulled together economic impact data that helped her secure a half-million-dollar grant. Honestly, I think without the information that UVM provided us, it would have been a tremendous struggle for us to understand what that impact is or even to have the basic data to be able to craft our narrative. UVM officials admit there is another potential benefit, keeping young people in Vermont. They say tackling projects in rural places could show students that there are towns outside of Burlington with strong communities and professional opportunities, and that might give them a reason to stay. For NPR News, I'm Liam Elder Connors in Bristol, Vermont. This is NPR News. It's a Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition, why leaders for some tribal governments are calling for their police and courts to have the power to prosecute the non-Indians selling drugs on reservations. It's 749. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The U.S. says it plans to use its veto during a U.N. Security Council vote today, demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is beginning a two-day hearing in what could be his final chance to avoid extradition to the U.S. from the U.K. And Capital One is agreeing to buy Discover for $35 billion. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. 
Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Mid-30s today under clear skies. Tonight, it'll grow overcast as temperatures fall to the upper 20s. Back to the mid-30s tomorrow, and it'll be partly sunny. It's 21 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. It's tax season. And if you're thinking about switching up how you file your taxes this year, the Internal Revenue Service might have you covered. The government agency has launched a pilot program in 12 states that allows eligible taxpayers to file federal returns directly with the IRS online and for free. Direct File marks an effort to create a free government alternative to private filing services like TurboTax and H&R Block. Joining us to talk about this new program is tax law and policy expert Ariel Jiro Kleiman. Professor Jiro Kleiman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So who is eligible for this? This year, eligibility is limited. It's not based on how much you earn, but it's based on what type of income you earn. So folks who earn wage income can use it. People that get Social Security income, unemployment income, a tiny bit of interest income, you'd be able to use it. Otherwise, if you're a freelancer, a gig worker, if you have a small business, those types of income won't be eligible. And then just a few types of credits and deductions are eligible. I think it might be surprising to people that it's taken this long to get a free federal filing system. As a person who studies this, can you help us understand, like, why has it taken this long? I think that's exactly right. I think a lot of people are really baffled as to why it's taken this long. I think the big reason is just IRS capacity. You know, like, it takes money and manpower to create something like this. And historically, the IRS has not had much of either of those things. They did, about 20 years ago, try to create a public filing system, an internet-based filing system, and it didn't go well. They didn't have enough resources to do it. They weren't the experts in it at the time. And so that was when they started this Free File Alliance. And as part of that program, so they, they started a partnership with these private tax software companies, and the IRS agreed to not create a public filing system. And that's been a big reason why this has never been developed. In 2019, there was some conflict about some members of Free File charging folks who should have been eligible for free services. And at that point, they took the limitation out of the contract. So the IRS in 2019 was then able to create a public filing system. And that's when, you know, folks started thinking about whether they should do it or not. Taxes are, it's not simple. It's not simple. I guess the bottom line question is, is this going to make our lives better? If you're eligible for this, is your life going to be better? (laughs) I mean, I, first of all, I completely agree. The tax system is incredibly complicated. I could not prepare a return without the use of tax software. I love good tax software. It'll make accessing the tax system, like I said, free. It'll help with privacy and security. It's not going to change our tax laws. So if somebody has a hard time understanding if they're eligible for the earned income tax credit, for instance, direct file is not going to make that simpler. It offers like a simple to access you know, portal for folks to use. So in that sense, it might make it a little simpler, but it's not going to make the tax laws less complex. Do you have a sense of when this might be more widely available, assuming that the pilot is a success? 
So for this year, I was told that the goal is mid-March to open it up to, you know, everyone who's eligible still with those income and credit limits that I mentioned. And then I think in future years, they're hoping to expand it to other folks that aren't eligible to use it this year. So like, you know, maybe gig workers and freelancers, maybe folks with like canceled debt income or pension income in future years. And I think that's the next big group that we would hope to see it able to use it. That is Ariel Giroux-Kleiman. She's professor of law at the Loyola Law School at Loyola Marymount University. Professor Giroux-Kleiman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finding the right weather conditions for outdoor ice skating can be tricky, but when the stars align, the results can be magical. Last week, a lake in the Adirondack Mountains of New York became a huge, glossy skating ring for one perfect afternoon. North Country Public Radio's Amy Feireisel takes us there. Lower Cascade Lake is a skinny, mile-long lake that runs along a two-lane mountain road. A group of kids are crisscrossing the ice, bundled to the nines. They're from a boarding school just down the road. Their teacher, Sierra Grennan, says they had to seize the moment. You need, like, perfect conditions. You need to have really cold weather after not having a lot of snow so that you can get this, like, perfect flat ice. It's a little windy, and some of the kids move cautiously. Others skate with wild abandon, fast, backwards. Middle schooler Ziggy Moore is skating with a hockey stick and puck. Now you're pretty comfortable on the skates. I've skated since like the age of like three, four. Grown up doing a lot of pond hockey with my dad and brother. And have you been skating here before? This is my first time skating here. Definitely not the last. Ice is like the best I've ever skated on outside of a rink. Near the lake's eastern edge, I spot two men skating tight, quick circles around boulders. Normally we carry hockey sticks, but we're not playing hockey today because we're... It was just a skating day. Yeah, it was a skating day. Perry Babcock and Greg Denon are both 67. As children, they played hockey together in nearby Lake Placid. And for decades, they've been skating this lake, ringed by mountains. Babcock says there's a very short window for sunshine. You can only skate here from about 1 to 3. You can see that's the sun, and it drops down into over the saddle, and it's gone. This winter's skating windows have been brief and fleeting. There's been thaw after thaw, but Babcock says he feels lucky. I grew up downstate, and all the ponds skating down there is gone. The ponds just don't freeze anymore. So up here, we're still lucky to have it. Everyone I meet on the ice is wearing hockey or figure skates, except for a woman making these big, graceful strides in ski boots attached to long metal blades. Can you explain what it is you're, you're skating on? I am skating on what's called a Nordic blade. Nancy Battaglia says Nordic blades are great for in-the-wild skating. Uh, you're able to handle the lumpy bumpies a little bit better oh, than the okay. shorter blades. You can go pretty quick. Be careful of that crack. Don't fall oh. in it. Yeah. <laughs> Battaglia steers us towards a patch of black, black ice. Wow. Oh, my gosh. You look down, and it's, like, totally clear with these tiny little bubbles frozen in there. It almost looks like balloons. Instead of going up layers of balloons, it's, you know, it's bubbles going down. In. And it's just so clear. You yeah. can look straight down. We skate west towards the setting sun. Snow is in the forecast for tonight, so tomorrow this lake might be unskatable. We have to savor this gift now. For NPR News, I'm Amy Feireisel on Lower Cascade Lake in Keene, New York.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Layla Falden. Sunny in mid-30s today. Clouds move in tonight as temperatures dip into the 20s. Partly sunny tomorrow and it'll be back in the mid-30s. We'll break into the low 40s on Thursday and it'll be mostly sunny. It's 21 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. edition host Sharon Brody and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. has proposed a draft U.N. security resolution that would support a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. It's Tuesday, February 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, lawyers for Julian Assange are making their last stand in a U.K. court to keep the WikiLeaks founder from being returned to the U.S. to face charges of spying. Also this hour, with just weeks to pay the state of New York hundreds of millions of dollars, former President Donald Trump has launched a new line of branded sneakers. This is something I've been talking about for 12 years, 13 years, and I think it's going to be a big success. Plus, a startup is debuting a device that uses AI to help people take care of everyday errands. We've all been waiting for this moment. We've had our Alexa, we've had our smart speakers, but like none of them can perform tasks from end to end. Sunny in 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Russian authorities continue to block the release of the body of the late opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Navalny died last week in a remote Russian prison colony under mysterious circumstances. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has more. Russia's investigative committee now tells Navalny's family its investigation into the opposition leader's death has been extended for an undetermined period. Investigators also say Navalny's body won't be released for at least another two weeks, as agents carry out a, quote, chemical examination of Navalny's remains. Little is known about the circumstances of Navalny's death last Friday. A statement from Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service at the time said only that medics had failed to resuscitate the opposition leader after he collapsed following a scheduled prison walk. Navalny's allies say delays in releasing his remains are part of a government effort to hide evidence of his murder. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. The U.N. Security Council will take up resolutions today that call for a ceasefire in Gaza. The United States is prepared to veto one of them. Instead, it has proposed its own. The U.S. draft calls for a pause in fighting, but it's based on the release of hostages still held by Hamas. It also calls for the lifting of all blocks to humanitarian aid for Palestinians. Authorities in Minnesota say a heavily armed man who killed two police officers and a firefighter near Minneapolis last weekend had a criminal record. The three were killed as they responded to a call about domestic violence at a home. From Minnesota Public Radio, Matt Sepik reports the standoff ended with the death of the gunman. 
Court records show that Shannon Cortez Gooden was prohibited from possessing firearms because of a 2008 felony assault conviction. The 38-year-old petitioned a judge unsuccessfully in 2020 to have his gun rights restored. In opposing the request, a prosecutor noted that two of Gooden's romantic partners had filed orders for protection against him. Gooden fatally shot two police officers and a firefighter paramedic from the suburb of Burnsville. Another officer was treated and released. Gooden barricaded himself inside a house for hours with seven children ages 2 to 15. All survived without physical injury. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. Two of the nation's largest credit card companies are going to merge. Capital One plans to buy Discover Financial in a deal worth about $35 billion. Capital One founder and CEO Rich Fairbank explains why Discover is such an attractive financial partner. Discover is a big company, but they're the smallest of the four U.S.-based global payment networks. And this acquisition will add scale to help it compete with the biggest players. The proposed merger will draw a close review from regulators. Congress has also been weighing legislation that would boost competition in the credit card business and cut merchant fees. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Four Brockton School Committee members want the National Guard in the city's high school. They wrote a letter to the city's mayor asking him to request Guard members. The group claims students have been fighting, using drugs, and leaving school grounds during the day. School Committee member Tony Rodriguez believes the issues stem in part from the school district's $20 million deficit. Where we are in the city of Brockton, um, with the deficit that created this mess, we're looking for support with the National Guard to come in and act as substitute teachers, hall monitors to make sure that the high school is safe. And it's not just the high school, it also includes our middle schools and elementary schools, and it's across the district. Brockton's mayor says he does not support the use of the National Guard. Governor Healy says she's reviewing the request. What's hopefully the last of a series of closures on the Tees Green Line begins today. The closures have been going on since November. WBUR's Gara Hogopian reports the latest slowdown is so crews can work on the tracks. The T says free shuttle buses will replace service on the B branch between Copley and Babcock Street, the C branch between Copley and Cleveland Circle, and the D branch between Copley and Brookline Hills. In addition, the commuter rail will be free between South Station, Back Bay, and Lansdowne, and the Route 57 bus will be free between Kenmore and Babcock Street. The closure is expected to cause delays for people riding the green line between Government Center and Copley, so the T recommends using the orange line as an alternative. The shutdown runs through March 8th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Garo Hagopian. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking government secrets is due in court today. Records show Jack Teixeira will be in court for a status conference. Federal prosecutors say Teixeira abused his security clearance and shared classified documents with a public online group. He's pleaded not guilty. Boston Red Sox players will wear patches on their jerseys this season to honor the team's former pitcher, Tim Wakefield. Wakefield pitched for the Red Sox for 17 seasons from 1995 to 2011. He died of brain cancer in the fall at age 57. The Boston Herald reports the jersey patch will feature Wakefield's number 49. It's 8.06. 
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And the listeners who support this NPR station. Boston women's pro hockey team dropped a game at home last night to New York 4-2. Meanwhile, the Celtics are off, the Red Sox have started spring training, and the Bruins won a tight one at home, scoring in the ninth round of a shootout to beat the Dallas Stars 4-3. Sunny today will have highs in the mid-30s. Clouds move in tonight. Lows will be in the upper 20s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow will have highs back in the mid-30s. It's 21 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. Good morning. London's high court begins weighing Julian Assange's fate today. The two-day hearing will determine whether the WikiLeaks founder will be extradited to the U.S. to face spying charges. This case goes back to the 2010 publication of hundreds of thousands of classified U.S. government documents related to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. NPR's Lauren Freyer is at our bureau in London and joins us now. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning, Leila. So bring us up to speed on Julian Assange. I mean, I have this image of him on a balcony of the Ecuadorian embassy in London where he was taking refuge for years. Where is he now? He was there. Now he's in a high security prison here in London, Belmarsh Prison, and he's been there for the past five years. Before that, he was, your memory serves you correctly, in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Here's a recap. In 2010, Assange was arrested here in London at the behest of Sweden, where two women had accused him of rape and sexual assault. He jumped bail in that case, took refuge in that Ecuadorian embassy. After seven years, the Ecuadorians evicted him, and he was arrested by the U.K for breaching that bail. Now, the Swedish charges have since been dropped, but in the meantime, the U.S. has charged him with 17 counts of espionage and one count of computer misuse. Ooh, lots of twists and turns yeah. there. I mean, okay, so this goes back to Chelsea Manning and her leak of U.S. military files during the Iraq War, right? Exactly. So Chelsea Manning was a U.S. Army intelligence analyst in Baghdad. In early 2010, she leaked hundreds of thousands of secret files to WikiLeaks, which shared them with media organizations and published them. And this was one of the biggest security breaches in the U.S. military ever. It included this now infamous, then classified video of a 2007 U.S. helicopter attack that killed about a dozen people in Baghdad, including two Reuters journalists. Yeah, of course. I remember that video really well. It became an important story for the public to know. You and I were both based in Baghdad at the time. Chelsea Manning went to prison and her sentence was commuted by then-President Obama. But the case against Assange still remains. It does. And it actually could have implications for media like you and me. Assange's lawyers say he is a publisher. Reporters Without Borders and other press freedom groups say this case sets a dangerous precedent for journalists to be charged with espionage for work that they do that's in the public interest. Mm. Now, Assange's lawyers also say they're concerned about his health. Last week, I interviewed Assange's wife, Stella Assange. She is a lawyer whom he married in 2022 while in prison, and they have two children together. Here's what she had to say. Well, it's impossible to describe what we've been through and Julian's life is at stake. In a bogus case that criminalizes journalism, 
She says her husband is at risk of suicide, and he is obsessed with this idea that the CIA wants to kill him, so he doesn't want to be transferred to the U.S. So let's talk about exactly what the U.K. court will decide in the next couple of days. Yeah, there are two U.K. judges who are deciding whether Assange can appeal an extradition order that has already been signed by the U.K. government. So the U.K. is not weighing whether Assange is a journalist. They're only weighing whether he can be extradited safely. The question of guilt or the validity of his defense will be decided at a U.S. trial if that happens. So after two days of arguments today and tomorrow, the judges could announce their decision tomorrow night. It could take a couple weeks. Assange's wife told me, though, that she's not optimistic and she thinks he could actually be on a plane to the U.S. within days. With NPR's Lauren Freyer in London. Thank you, Lauren. You're welcome. More than half of Gaza's population has sought shelter in the southern region of Rafah, across the border from Egypt. Israel is warning of an impending ground invasion in that area if hostages aren't freed by Hamas. And the Biden administration is warning Israel not to advance without first ensuring the more than one million people sheltering there have an opportunity to seek safety somewhere else. NPR's Aya Batrawi is following all of this and joins us now from Dubai. Good morning, Aya. Good morning, Leila. So let's start with Rafah. What's the situation there for people? Well, as you note, at least a million people have fled their homes and have sought shelter in Rafah, many of them living in makeshift tents after being pushed from their homes by Israeli ground operations in other areas like the north. And there was hope that Rafah would be a safe zone, but it's not. There is no safe place in Gaza for civilians, and people are growing desperate. The number of aid trucks entering Gaza has fluctuated dramatically in recent days from one day to the next. Some days, 100 trucks go in. On other days, just a fraction of that. And now there's growing concern about hunger disease and hospitals collapsing. You know, already more than 29,000 people in Gaza, most of the women and children have been killed by direct violence in this war, according to the health ministry there, a war that began October 7th when Hamas attacked Israel. And in that attack, they took 240 hostages and 1,200 people were killed, according to Israeli officials. Yeah, and some of those hostages uh, have been released and some still remain. Israel has carried out airstrikes on Rafah. What do we know about their impact? Israel says Hamas battalions are active in Rafah, but civilians have also suffered there. I mean, there are so many stories of loss and trauma. And here's one from Sunday. Around two dozen people were sheltering in a home in Rafah when an airstrike hit the house. Just five people survived. Now, among those killed Layla in that airstrike were a newlywed couple. Mm. They'd been engaged for about a year and decided to go ahead and tie the knot on Thursday. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, spoke to the bride's father, Abdesalam Adib, about his daughter, Maryam Deeb. And here's what he said. He says his daughter had only been married for two days when she and her husband were killed and that they didn't even get a chance to experience life and see the world. He says, I wish I could say goodbye to her, kiss her and hug her. Her body's still under the rubble. Wow, it's really hard to hear the helplessness of all these families and stories like this. Now, of course, the Biden administration continues to back Israel's war in Gaza against Hamas, providing weapons and aid to Israel's military. But the president has also cautioned Israel against rushing into a ground invasion of Rafah. What do we know, though, about Israel's plans? Well, Israel's war cabinet has been vague about Rafah, just as they've been unclear about where this war is headed and what the future of Gaza is going to look like. Now, there has been a push by mediators to get a truce in place, preferably before the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, which begins in about three weeks. But over the weekend, a member of Israel's war cabinet said that if hostages aren't freed by Ramadan, fighting would continue everywhere in Gaza, including in Rafah. 
Hmm. Egypt has expressed real concern about the possibility that a ground invasion of Raqqa would push Palestinians across the border into its territory. How's that affecting relations between Egypt and Israel? Relations are really tense. I mean, there haven't been any direct calls between Egypt's president and Israel's prime minister, but Egypt is still trying to get Hamas and Israel to agree to a ceasefire of some kind. Now, as a precaution, Egyptian security officials tell NPR Egypt is constructing a walled-off security zone that could take up to 150,000 Palestinians on its side of the border in case people do break through and breach Egypt's border. Egypt is very concerned that any displacement of Palestinians into Egypt would be permanent and that it would drag Egypt into the war. NPR's Aya Batrawi in Dubai. Thank you, Aya. Thank you, Leila. Last year, ChatGPT took the world by storm. This year, AI agents that do errands for you are all the rage. NPR's Bobby Allen looked into why techies are so excited about it. ChatGPT can give you recipes, but it won't order food for you. Using AI to complete real-world tasks is something a whole slate of Silicon Valley startups are pouring millions of dollars into right now. One of the buzziest companies doing this is called Rabbit. They've developed a device called the Rabbit R1. It's a bright orange gadget about half the size of an iPhone. It has a button on the side that you push and then talk into, almost like a walkie-talkie. It'll order DoorDash for you, call an Uber, book a flight to Cancun, and it learns what you like, what your preferences are, and then uses this knowledge to make suggestions. This is the first time that AI exists in a hardware format. That's Ashley Bao, a spokeswoman for Rabbit, talking to me at the company's headquarters in Santa Monica. I think we've all been waiting for this moment. We've had our Alexa, we've had our smart speakers, but like none of them, even Siri, cannot perform tasks from end to end and brings really words to action for you. Now, when I tried it out, it didn't really bring any words into action since I was playing around with a limited demo version. So to ask it a question, I push down on this yes, button. you push down on that button and then, and then ask. you see the three dots, yeah. then you ask. What is the best taco restaurant in Santa Monica? Based on the search results, Popular taco restaurants in Santa Monica include Blue Plate Taco, Tacos Por Favor. Por Favor, but okay. (laughs) It's got to work on in Spanish. That Spanish pronunciation hasn't dampened enthusiasm. More than 80,000 people have pre-ordered the Rabbit R1, which will start shipping in a couple months. It's just one of several efforts underway to be the go-to AI sidekick. Another company, Humane, has an AI pin that can assist with tasks. Google and Microsoft are racing to develop products that will make reservations for you, maybe book a doctor's appointment, reschedule a meeting. Last year, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, the maker of ChatGPT, nodded to the future of AI errand helpers at the company's developer conference. Eventually, you'll just ask a computer for what you need, and it'll do all of these tasks for you. AI this, AI that. After ChatGPT became a global hit, every online service bragged about using some kind of AI. Now, according to Dwayne Forrester, an analyst at the firm Yext, we're about to see that same phenomenon with gadgets. Early on with the unleashing of AI, every single product and service attached the letters A and I to whatever their product or service was. I think we're going to end up seeing a version of that with hardware as well. But he wonders if something like an AI walkie-talkie is really necessary. Probably not. In fact, he says when Siri and Alexa can start taking our orders to do things, won't these devices become useless? You don't need a different piece of hardware to accomplish this. What you need is this level of intelligence and utility in the current device. A paper published last year by the Center for AI Safety warned against AI agents. It said if one of these assistants was given a goal, say, maximize my stock market profits without being told how to achieve it, that could create some problems along the way. 
Some experts are now worried about AI assistants running amok because these new products are the first time we're seeing AI automate things in our offline lives. Back in Santa Monica, Rabbit R1 creative director Anthony Gargas pitches the device as a way to get stuff done and never have to open an app again. Our screens are something that kind of take the essence of life away from us, and this device is meant to kind of enhance that and be a companion towards your experience of everyday life. Now, this thing still has a screen. It's just a small one. And instead of looking at apps, you look at a bouncing cartoon rabbit head that does stuff for you. Does that really enhance life? In some very, very small way, maybe. Bobby Allen, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. We're following news this morning of Capital One agreeing to buy Discover for $35 billion. Also, a judge has indicted 51 people in the 2021 death of Haiti's president, including the president's wife. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, as southern Gaza and the city of Rafah await a possible Israeli attack, Egypt has created a buffer zone in anticipation of a spillover of Palestinian refugees. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Texas has spent millions busing the record number of migrants to cities across the country. If nothing else, then to raise awareness to the rest of the country of of what we're having to deal with here on a regular basis. But critics argue the program is too expensive and inhumane. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today. Highs will be in the mid-30s. It'll grow overcast tonight and temperatures will dip into the 20s. Partly sunny tomorrow and we'll have highs back in the mid-30s. It's 21 degrees in Boston. This week marks the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. For the Wall Street Journal's chief foreign affairs correspondent, that means two years of stories from his homeland's battle for existence. Hear from him at 10 on the radio and on the WBUR app. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jatasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jatasa is committed to serving nonprofits who make the world a better place. JITASA.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. The Indian Health Service says fentanyl has provoked a crisis on tribal lands. 
overdose death rates have surged. Tribal leaders say the flow of the drug into Indian country amounts to an emergency, and some say it's time for tribal police and courts to have greater powers to fight the drug trade. NPR's Martin Costi covers law enforcement and has this story. Back in November, during a hearing about fentanyl in the Senate Indian Affairs Committee, there was a revealing moment. It was this exchange between Senator John Tester and a councilman from the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, a man by the name of Bryce Kirk. Let's say that a non-native is selling drugs on your reservation. Does the tribal justice system have the ability to arrest and prosecute them? No. What can we do about that? Give us the criminal jurisdiction to be able to charge them in tribal court so we're able to hold them in our jails. Ever since a 1978 ruling by the Supreme Court, tribes are not allowed to prosecute non-Native Americans for most crimes, even if the non-Native violates tribal law on tribal land. To see what this looks like, you need to ride along with a reservation police officer. Haisan Duong is a narcotics detective with the police department on the Tulalip Tribes Reservation in Washington State. The reservation is between Puget Sound and I-5. The interstate is where the tribal casinos are, and where the drugs come from, so Duong starts his day in the casino parking lots. This is probably one of our busiest times from like 5 a.m. till about 9 a.m. You're gonna see people, you know, your average user and you know, low to mid-level dealers. There's a parked car that seems suspicious. He pulls up behind it and talks to the woman inside. Hey, I see a meth pipe in the um, center console in the cup holder. What's going on with that? That meth pipe is drug paraphernalia. It's illegal under tribal law. But this woman is not Native American, and under state law, that pipe is not a chargeable offense. Duong lets her go. But just based on the drug paraphernalia, I'm going to ask you to leave for the day, okay? Does that sound pretty fair? Okay. Now, contrast that with what happens a few minutes later with two Native men. They're in a black Camaro, and the police spot what's called a tutor inside. A tutor is a hollowed-out plastic pen. It's scorched at the ends, and it's typically used to inhale fentanyl smoke. Right away, the officers ask if the men are Indian. Are you a Tulane tribal member? No. Uh, are you a tribal enrolled? No. Oh, uh, yeah, I am. Oh, uh, from where? Oh, from Skagit. Okay, all right. So it is a crime to have drug paraphernalia, okay? They're from a different tribe, but they're still subject to this tribe's laws. So unlike the white woman with the pipe, they can be charged for drug paraphernalia. Police have more leverage over the two men because they're American Indian. More leverage to nudge them into the tribal court's drug treatment program or maybe to help the police. You know, sometimes, let's say we get this gentleman and he wants to work off his charge and take us to his dealer, right? The tribe recently made drug dealing a felony. It used to be a misdemeanor. But here again, they can bring those charges only against tribal members. If an alleged dealer turns out to be non-native, they have to take the case to state or federal prosecutors who may not see it as a priority. We are bearing the brunt of criminal activity without the ability to address it. Angelique Eaglewoman is an expert on Native American law at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota. She says tribes are too dependent on outside prosecutors and courts. So we have to reach out to state and federal partners and hope that they devote resources, hope they hear the call, hope they understand the crisis. It's very frustrating. But the system doesn't have to be this way. In that same 1978 ruling, the Supreme Court also said that tribes could prosecute non-Indians if they got express permission from Congress. And in the last decade, Congress has approved special tribal criminal jurisdiction for certain crimes. Not for drug crimes, but for domestic violence, and since 2022, a longer list that includes crimes against children. 
and you can see that new authority at work in the Tulalip Tribes Court. All right, we can go ahead and get started. And good afternoon, Your Honor. Crystal Curley present on behalf of the tribes. We in this recent case, for instance, the defendant is non-Indian. She's white, a former school employee accused of sex with an underage member of the tribe. She pleaded guilty to communication with a minor for immoral purposes. And now as she weeps softly next to her lawyer, the tribal court is sentencing her to jail time. I do agree with the tribes that it's actually a very lenient offer considering the conduct. This looks and sounds like any American court, except the prosecution isn't called the state, it's called the tribes. The chief judge here is Meredith Drent, a citizen of the Osage Nation. And she says it just makes sense for this court to have jurisdiction over the non-Indians who live here or visit. When I go to Colorado, I may not know their laws, but I know that I'm going to have to follow them and they can prosecute me if I don't. And it's the same thing here. When you enter someone else's jurisdiction, you fall under their laws. So what's stopping more expanded tribal jurisdiction? In part, it's political resistance, especially in states with extensive tribal lands. In Oklahoma, there should be one set of rules, period. This and video was posted by Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt after a federal court ruled last year that Tulsa can't enforce speeding tickets against Native Americans in the parts of the city that are on tribal land. The governor is Cherokee, but he's been adamantly against this and other recent rulings that have increased tribal authority. We need one united Oklahoma, an Oklahoma where all men are created equal. The Constitution does not apply on that reservation. This is Lana Markison, a lawyer with Citizens Equal Rights Foundation. It's a nonprofit that opposes the current system of tribal sovereignty. She simply doesn't trust the tribal justice system. I would say the majority of tribes try to be good to their members, okay? But the fact is, if you cross that tribal government or you cross that police chief, boy, they know full well they don't have to give any of those rights. Tribal leaders call this position anti-Indian and unfair to the native courts that do guarantee due process. But ultimately, this is all up to Congress. Professor Eaglewoman says it usually takes a crisis for Congress to expand tribal jurisdiction. A decade ago, that crisis was the outcry over missing and murdered indigenous women. That led to, yes, tribes can prosecute non-Indians engaged in dating violence, engaged in domestic violence on tribal lands. We have the same thing now happening with the influx of fentanyl and other drugs. Tribes need that authority. An authority in Eaglewoman's view that comes down to a matter of sovereignty. Martin Costi, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, a new docu-series on the Oxygen Network revisits the relationship between the late Tejano singer Selena and the woman convicted of murdering her. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Habib & Associates Architects. Providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. HabibARCH.com.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A two-day court hearing is underway in London where lawyers for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange are trying to prevent his extradition to the U.S. to face charges of espionage. Hearings are continuing today at the U.N.'s highest court on the legality of Israel's occupation of lands claimed by the Palestinians. The U.N. has asked the International Court of Justice in The Hague for a non-binding advisory opinion as the war between Israel and Hamas goes on. Irish Foreign Minister Michael Martin says he's among those concerned about the number of Palestinians being killed by Israeli forces as they target Hamas. We've condemned Hamas's activities from the beginning, uh, but the world um, is, is, is shocked and, and the people on the ground and out in the streets are shocked at the level of inhumanity that's now happening uh, within Gaza. The Gaza Health Ministry says Israeli forces have killed more than 29,000 Palestinians since Hamas attacked southern Israel in October, killing about 1,200 people and taking hundreds more hostage. The U.S. says it plans to veto a resolution going before the U.N. Security Council this morning. It calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The U.S. is proposing its own resolution calling for a six-week ceasefire and the release of hostages. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A day shelter is opening this morning in Chelsea for unhoused people, including migrants. The shelter will provide services and meals for up to 200 people each day. It's being jointly run by two nonprofits, La Collaborativa and the United Way. United Way has set up eight other shelters in the last few months with state grant funding. That grant expires in May. United Way Vice President Sarah Bartley says she hopes the shelter will stay open longer than that. We do anticipate bringing forward um, a few more opportunities. Uh, They need to be viable opportunities. We'll have enough funding left after this to bring um, a couple more opportunities forward. She adds that many of the people expected to use the site will be coming from a shelter in Cambridge that is only open at night. Some young people are using their school vacation week to give back to their communities. The nonprofit Food for Free is making its regular volunteer sessions kid-friendly this morning. Volunteers will head to Somerville to pack about 1,300 boxes of food to donate across eastern Massachusetts. Food for Free's Jennifer Pechtel shared what's in the boxes this week. Fresh oranges, um, we've got some other citrus, we have some limes. We have some local radishes and beets from farms in western Massachusetts. We're also providing some things like some pasta and some grits, to, you know, some shelf-stable items to help get families through the week. The food will go to places like low-income housing sites and food pantries. There's a hiring spree happening at the MBTA. By the end of last year, the agency's workforce increased by 11 percent. Leaders of a union representing tea workers tell the Commonwealth Beacon higher wages and hiring bonuses are helping to attract new workers. The starting wage for bus drivers is currently $30 an hour. That's among the highest pay levels in the country. The increases follow a state report last year that showed staffing levels at the T were around 20 percent below what is required to maintain the system. It said increased hiring is essential to ensuring a safe and reliable service for riders. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. 
It's cold here in Boston, but less so in Fort Myers, where the Red Sox officially began spring training yesterday. Otherwise, in Boston sports yesterday, the Bruins won, the women's hockey team lost, and the Celtics are off. Highs in the mid-30s today, and it'll be sunny. Tonight, temperatures fall to the upper 20s and it grows cloudy. Tomorrow, highs in the mid-30s again under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. It's 22 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. Good morning. As in many states, people in Louisiana are worried about rising crime. Yeah, and the state legislature opened a special session this week to consider dozens of bills meant to address that, but the proposed measures also threaten to undo some of the state's recent criminal justice reforms, including a controversial proposal that would make it easier to carry out death sentences. WRKF's Molly Ryan covers the Louisiana state government and joins us now from Baton Rouge. Hi, Molly. Hi. So we mentioned this proposed legislation that would make state executions easier. What's in that bill? So basically, there's been a bill that's been filed that would expand the methods of execution in Louisiana to include electrocution and nitrogen gas hypoxia. Right now, only lethal injection is allowed, but it's been hard to source those drugs, and Louisiana hasn't executed anyone since 2010. There's currently around 60 people on Louisiana's death row. Here's the state's new Republican governor, Jeff Landry, opening the session yesterday and inviting family members of murder victims to come to the Capitol. Capital punishment is lawful, and we intend to fulfill our legal duty to resume it for the justice of these families. But there's also a lot of opposition to this bill from lawmakers, and even TV and film producers are talking about possibly boycotting the state as a filming location if this passes because they don't want to see the state resume executions. Mm. So you know some pretty significant opposition there. What other measures might come out of this special session and are there similar concerns? Yeah, well, there are several bills that look to limit parole eligibility and cut back on the reduced sentences that incarcerated individuals can earn for good behavior. There's also a bill that would lower the age in Louisiana at which someone can be tried as an adult from 18 to 17. And there are several bills that would increase penalties for certain crimes like carjacking and distributing fentanyl. So overall, the governor and lawmakers are looking to just get much tougher in terms of dealing with crime. And these items have all raised concerns from Democrats and Louisiana's Legislative Black Caucus, which said that these bills will disproportionately affect Black men. They also said that the bills are reactive and don't address the root issue of crime, so they don't think it will help anything. Now, Molly, Louisiana made big changes in its criminal justice system since 2016, and these bills would undo some of that work. Why go back on those policies now? There's a lot of angst in Louisiana about crime, like there is in a lot of the country, and 
Crime rates in Louisiana are relatively high compared to other places in the country, but have dropped in some of the state's biggest cities. And Louisiana's new GOP governor, Jeff Landry, he campaigned on a platform that would get tough on crime and promised voters on the campaign trail that he would call this session. So that's a big reason why we're here. Uh, these policies are likely to be popular with a lot of Republican voters in Louisiana. But as I mentioned before, others are worried that these bills won't address the root issues of crime like mental health and education. WRKF's Molly Ryan in Baton Rouge. Thank you so much, Molly. Thank you. Donald Trump has long boasted of a vast fortune. That's before a New York civil court ordered him to pay what could top $450 million to the state as a penalty for deceiving lenders about his net worth. Now, since that decision, the former president has set up a crowdfunding campaign and launched a Trump-branded line of sneakers. I have some incredible people that work with me on things, and they came up with this, and this is something I've been talking about for 12 years, 13 years. And I think it's going to be a big success. Now, whether his sneaker sales are a success or not, Trump has about 30 days to deliver hundreds of millions of dollars to the state of New York or secure a bond. So let's ask Jim Wheaton how Trump might come up with those funds. He's a professor at the William and Mary School of Law who has studied corporate legal issues and Donald Trump's finances. Professor, so what restrictions does the ruling place on Donald Trump's ability to make some money? Uh, there are really three levels of restrictions. First, the judge decided to continue the independent monitor, a former federal judge who essentially has veto power over a lot of the things that the Trump organization can do. And he also added a requirement that they hire a new compliance officer. Second, he banned the former president from serving as essentially a management of any of his New York business entities. And he banned the president's two sons for two years and the former president for three years from that work. And then finally, uh, the Trump organization and its entities are not allowed to get loans or financing from any institution that's registered or does business in New York, which obviously limits the universe of potential financers for things like the bond, but also for additional financing for any of the Trump ventures. So I mentioned the judgment, uh, $355 million then with interest, it leads to around $450 million. Does that sound about right? It does, but that's only pre-judgment interest. Okay. So as soon as the judgment is entered in this case, uh, formally by the judge, uh, the interest clock is going to continue to run at about 9% a year until that amount is actually paid to the state of New York in this case, or if you're talking about the Gene Carroll judgment from a few weeks ago to Mrs. Carroll. So how's he going to come up with that in 30 days? Uh, the calculations were primarily based on the savings that the Trump organization and the different Trump companies received by virtue of misrepresenting the their financial condition. So the judge looked at what interest rate they would have paid uh, had they honestly represented the financial condition, determined that there had been fraud and calculated what the interest rate would have been on a project by project basis uh, had, had, the, had they received market interest rates for the kind of financial condition they had. Does Trump, though, have that kind of cash laying around? You know, he testified in a deposition that he had about $400 million in cash assets. You know, that seems consistent, apparently, with what others have reported that those in the Trump orbit say that he has. Uh, as you indicated, this could be about a $450 million number. 
with an additional premium to protect against post-judgment interest that goes above 500 million. And then you add the Gene Carroll number in there and you're soon over 600 million. If he appeals all this though, will he still have to pay right off the bat? He's got the same appeal bond requirement for the Carroll judgment. And that judgment was entered about a week ago. And so the 30 day appeal clock is running on that one. So, so both of these judgments have a potential impact on his cash. All right, that's Professor Jim Wheaton at the William & Mary Law School. Uh, Professor, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the implications of a new USDA report that shows that America's farmers are getting older. Sunny and mid-30s today, increasingly cloudy and upper 20s tonight, partly sunny and mid-30s tomorrow. It's 23 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. There's no set opening date for the Amazon Fresh Grocery Store in Braintree. That's despite a permit for that location being issued in 2021. An Amazon spokesperson tells the Patriot Ledger the company plans to open more Amazon Fresh locations if they do well in other areas. Melrose will soon get its first craft brewery. Hannah's Brewing Company is set to open in the formerly dry city around St. Patrick's Day. The mayor tells the Boston Business Journal he hopes the opening will benefit local retailers who are still struggling after the pandemic. A popular pizza chain plans to expand in Newton. Auto Pizza plans to open on Walnut Street. It's taking over the former Donut Villa location. The new restaurant will join other locations in Brookline, Cambridge, and Andover. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. The Oxygen Network is out with a new true crime docuseries, Selena and Yolanda, The Secrets Between Them. It's a two-part series by the late Tejano singer Selena Quintanilla Perez, known simply as Selena, and the woman convicted of murdering her, Yolanda Saldivar. I knew her secrets, and I think the people deserve to, to know the truth. Saldivar says she wants to set the record straight. Selena's family did not take part in the docuseries, which comes about a year before Saldivar becomes eligible for parole. For more on this, we're joined now by Maria Garcia, creator and host of the podcast Anything for Selena. Maria, did this uh, documentary reveal anything new? No, not really, A. You know, there there are a ton of small details that the documentary tries to frame as like bombshell revelations, but that are simply not. The documentary attempts to cast doubt on whether Yolanda was really embezzling from Selena prior to murdering her. Um, Yolanda says that the checks she wrote to herself from Selena's business uh, were so that she could cash the money and use it to pay for her and Selena to travel to see someone that Selena was supposedly having an affair with. There's absolutely zero proof of this, but the documentary still airs these baseless claims. And I think a the most distasteful thing the show does is present these empty accusations that Abraham, Selena's father, harassed Yolanda and that that somehow informed Yolanda's decision to murder Selena. Yolanda says she got the gun because um, that ultimately killed Selena because her tires had been slashed, her brakes had been cut, and she was being followed. But again, zero evidence of this. Now, um, I mentioned how uh, Saldivar is going to be eligible for parole in March of 2025, March 30th, actually. She's serving a life sentence. What do you make of the timing of this docuseries? Well, you know, I think as a lifelong fan of Selena, there's always been people trying to capitalize on her story. And it appears to me, based on the fact that this documentary doesn't present anything of substance, that it's a project that's doing just that, that's taking something that some people would argue is newsworthy and using it as an excuse to present these baseless claims in an effort to, frankly, make some money out of Selena's legacy. How are fans reacting? You know, we're obviously upset, eh? Like, this show didn't, in my opinion, like, bring any nuance. It had sort of these meaningless details and unverified letters and these baseless allegations. And all it did to to me, was thoughtlessly platform a killer and blame a victim and her family for her tragic murder. And these bizarre allegations against Selena have come up before, like I said. And what these projects tend to do is put Selena on trial when Yolanda pulled that trigger and has really never expressed genuine remorse. It's been almost 30 years, as you mentioned. I mean, wow. I, I still can't believe it. It's almost like just you just can't believe that she's gone because she's still alive in so many ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're so protective of Selena because Selena, for many of us, is us. For many yeah. of us, Selena was the first celebrity who spoke and sounded like us. We care about her legacy because, in yeah. a way, it's the legacy of Latinos. That's Maria Garcia, host of the podcast Anything for Selena. Maria, thanks. I'm dreaming of you tonight, till tomorrow, I'll be holding you tight. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on the draft UN policy resolution being floated by the U.S. calling for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. And they'll look at whether the Wagner Mercenary Group has rebranded. It's 849. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. A two-day hearing kicks off today to decide whether WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange will be extradited to the U.S. to face spy charges. The mother of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is asking President Vladimir Putin to intervene and turn over her son's body. And a judge in Haiti is indicting dozens of people in the 2021 assassination of the former president, including the president's widow. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov and Lesley University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Lesley University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at lesley.edu. Mid-30s today under clear skies. Tonight, it'll grow overcast as temperatures fall to the upper 20s. Back to the mid-30s tomorrow, and it'll be partly sunny. It's 24 degrees in Boston. A merger in your wallet as Discover Cards and Capital One Cards seek to become one. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden Password Manager enables quick and easy logins through Biometric Unlock and Password Autofill. More at Bitwarden.com. And by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers. Secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. One of the country's biggest credit card firms wants to buy another. Capital One says it's reached an all-stock deal to take over Discover Financial Services. The deal would create a stronger rival to Visa and MasterCard. It would also mean one less credit card company competing for consumers and a big bank getting bigger. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Capital One is highlighting the merger's potential to create more competition among payment networks where there are few players. There's Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and Discover, a distant fourth. Capital One says a combined company could better compete with the dominant networks, which theoretically could mean lower fees and maybe lower costs for consumers. Both companies are also giant financial institutions. Capital One with $470 billion in assets, Discover with $150 billion. Regulators in Washington have shown little appetite for approving big mergers in the financial sector, especially following the regional bank failures last year, which showed that even mid-sized institutions could pose systemic risks. Meanwhile, Capital One and Discover are both preparing for an increase in defaults as pandemic savings run out and consumers amass more debt. Capital One said the deal would help it become a bigger bank in general, while also reducing expenses. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Shall we do the numbers? 
Yes, the market screens show Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures all down three-tenths of a percent at the moment. The 10-year interest rate quite steady this morning, but at 4.27 percent, it's parked at the highest since late November. American farmers are getting older. That is one finding of the government's Census of Agriculture report. In 2022, farmers were just over 58 years old on average. That's a half-year increase in the average since the last census taken back in 2017. Marketplace's Savannah Marr has more on what's keeping young people out. For one, American farms are getting bigger and harder to buy, says Sarah Lowe at the University of Illinois. There's definitely a connection between commodity agriculture and barriers to entry. Agricultural markets and U.S. farm policy reward producers that grow lots of one or two commodity crops. Lowe says that's hard to pull off if you're starting from scratch. You need to convince people to lease you land. You need to acquire very expensive capital machinery. And even for young people set to inherit large farms, there's the burden of student loans, a shortage of rural housing and childcare. Erin Foster-West is with the National Young Farmers Coalition. If we don't have people to come in and steward those farms, that really makes it hard for rural communities to have thriving economies. And our food systems are in trouble. Foster West says all this should be on lawmakers' minds as they negotiate the next farm bill, which could include new supports for young farmers. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG. UKG is a partner that delivers HR, pay, time, and culture solutions designed to help build a great workplace for everyone. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Progressive Insurance. Customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto. Learn more about bundling at Progressive.com. Some recent inflation indicators have been pointing in the wrong direction. The most recent one was the Producer Price Index, PPI. In January, it went up three-tenths of a percent, higher than economists predicted or wanted. And we get distracted by consumer price readings, but this PPI needs more attention. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer reports. Traditionally, you hear the PPI described as a measure of wholesale prices, say raw materials such as chemicals, scrap iron, sand, and gravel. It does measure those things, but over the years it's been expanded to include some unexpected services, says Chris Rupke, chief economist at Forward Bonds. And that's portfolio management, investment advice, uh, home insurance, airfare, car insurance, which has taken off recently, of course. Now, PPI data isn't flashy. It's not a direct reflection of what we spend, say, at the grocery store. So Manhattan Institute economist Allison Schrager says for many years it didn't get a lot of love. It's like that person in your office who isn't as flashy but is wise and people only turn to when the world goes crazy. That's PPI. And the world is a little crazy right now. So economists are looking to the PPI as a kind of leading indicator of higher prices upstream. 
that will most likely make their way downstream to us consumers. And Schrager says the PPI is flashing some warning signs. For example, the cost of hospital outpatient care, yep, that's also in the PPI, was up more than 2% last month because hospitals agreed to pay higher wages at the beginning of the year. I think it tells us that this last bit of inflation might be harder than we thought to get rid of. One other reason to love the PPI, the parts of it we've been talking about, raw materials, health care, they're all components of the Fed's favorite measure of consumer inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, or PCE. That's the number the Fed tracks for its 2% inflation target. And economist Chris Rupke says if the PCE goes up because of the hotter-than-expected PPI, Maybe the economy isn't rebalancing as much as Fed officials thought. Maybe they can't lower interest rates as quickly because the inflation fire is not completely under control. In that case, the Fed would have to keep interest rates higher for longer to cool the economy and douse those last flames of inflation. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. And a published report says Apple is going to be hit with a fine in Europe for giving unfair advantage to its Apple Music service over, say, Spotify. Apple is not commenting and the EU isn't confirming, but the Financial Times puts the fine at $529 million. Under EU law, the fine could have been nearly 75 times higher, as much as $40 billion. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM. American Public Media. Sunny in mid-30s today. Clouds move in tonight as temperatures dip into the 20s. Partly sunny tomorrow and it'll be back in the mid-30s. We'll break into the low 40s on Thursday and it'll be mostly sunny. It's 24 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.